This is the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. Podcast series. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital. Power 102 Digital. Yeah. All right, thank you so much to the fine folks out at Bermuda. It's the makers of Cricks, your vital supplies. Make sure and pick up your pack today and keep it in your office, in your car, in your purse. If it fits in your wallet, might as well. All right, so thank you so much to the wonderful folks out at Bermuda's Makers of Cricks. Traffic wise, just want to tell you that Santa Rosa lights on the highway, they're not working. In fact, it disappeared. The light disappeared. So there's a police officer directing traffic there. So please take note. It's a bit heavy in every route that you can think about, but it's quite heavy out in and out of Point Lisa's as well this morning. All right, gentlemen, let's get into results of our poll before we get into our esteemed guest this morning. All right, of course, this morning. I don't know. I don't know where he is. Yeah. This morning, of course, we asked, um, do you believe that the revelations by Clarence Rambarat deserves an investigation by the Commission of Police and a statement by the Prime Minister? We had... 24 people weighing in on our poll this morning all recording in progress every single person said it warrants an investigation and of course a statement by the prime minister and we have no lesser person as our guest than a former minister of agriculture himself (laughs) must be aware of this what clarence rambard is talking good morning to you mr vassan barath how are you I'm very well, gentlemen. How are you guys? Not bad at all. Long time, that's right. Out of sight, out of mind, eh? Boy. No, 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 no. You're clear, you know, our minds, because we call you. <laughs> you. As a matter of fact, last week, was it last week, um, one of our most ardent um, callers, right. goes by the name of Mr. Pinal, I think he, he named you as one of the leaders of the UNC, the, um, you, um, you, Dr. Munilal, and I think he said Ramona Ramdial with the three possible... I am, nowhere, I am nowhere close to the leadership of the UNC, uh, so I'm not sure where he's gotten that information from. But clearly, clearly he feels that you should be. I think he, he was suggesting a potential leader in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the discussion well, was hum- about yeah about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm humbled, but not in the current dispensation and current makeup of the organization. Well, naturally, you have to go in there as leader and change it. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a discussion hopefully for another time. All right. <laughs> well, well, if you, if you could chime in on a question this morning, I'm sh- I, I don't know if you've had sight or or sound of Mr. Rambarat's revelations, startling revelations about land issues. You were Minister of Agriculture at one point, and uh, land deeds, tenure, corruption has always been a conversation in Toronto. Because what thinks you about these revelations? Well, I can't say that they're startling revelations simply because uh, there's been whispers about this kind of activity taking place for quite some time. Um, Mr. Rambarat obviously has uh, confronted uh, the matter and taken a lot of these issues to court. And I agree with all of your callers uh, this morning in your poll that the matter needs to be thoroughly investigated. Um, I can't say that uh, much of this was brought to my attention when I was minister, and I'm not sure if it's simply that uh, the, the issue has escalated considerably or it was just never brought to my attention. But uh, 
I, I would be naive to, if I were to tell you that uh, this has not been going on, um, or certainly I, I, uh, that none of this has been going on for a long time. And the reality is that the, our systems of governance across the board, not just in agriculture, is completely broken. There's no accountability. Um, there is um, no, no one takes responsibility um, for assets of government. And it, it has become almost a free-for-all in, in almost every aspect of our lives to the detriment of the citizens in the country as a whole. And um, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm happy that Mr. Rambrat has brought it to the attention of the authorities. And let's hope that the, um, the work that's required to bring those, or to at least investigate this thoroughly, is done expeditiously and is not swept under the carpet um, because the political directorate believes that it may reflect badly on them. What, what kinds of issues would have come to your attention? In addition to, of course, the land deed issue, which you tried to, to solve at some level. Yeah, I think what creates the problem, Paul, is the lethargy in the system and the lack of transparency in the system. So it's almost like uh, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, town and country, uh, it's a separate issue. Town and country is so lethargic in issuing uh, proper permits for people to build that people build, people just go ahead and build um, without planning, without planning permission. Or you have a situation where, unfortunately, town and country officers, um, it is alleged, look for bribes to be able to to be able to process permits. And that is happening throughout our government service. And I, I don't think it's any different in the agricultural sector, where because of the lethargy involved in, um, in dealing with leases, some of, them, some of those leases, as you all know, um, have been outstanding. For, they, they've expired 20, 30 years ago, um, which does not allow the incumbent holder uh, of the land to be able to make the application necessary applications for the incentives, for example. So what's the easiest way to do? And what is, because the system is so lethargic, it opens up opportunities for public officers to take bribes, unfortunately, to be able to satisfy or satiate the need of the, of the person who requires the land or requires the lease. And it's unfortunate, but that's, that's what it is. And until, you know, the, the, the IMF, has recently concluded the schedule for um, consultations. And every single time the IMF is here or any other um, of the um, uh, world institutions are here, they talk about reform of the public service. And until we engage in that seriously, we are going to continue to have these problems. If not in, in, in uh, agriculture, you'll have it in planning, you will have it in healthcare, you will have it all over the place because there are no proper checks and balances. And most importantly, and this is something I continue to say and I've said in your program, leaders do not take responsibility. What they do is pass the blame on from one to the other. And that is an unfortunate aspect of life in Trinidad and Tobago. So until we take responsibility for our own ministries as leaders, um, as ministers and as prime ministers, uh, this, this, kind of, this kind of thing will continue to happen. But you know, Minister, so, so, Minister, no, no, no. I hear you, but, but the public service, I mean, public service reform is, some, is a conversation that has been talked about for approximately decades. 
at least over 10, 15, 20 years. Um, it's something that has always been part of the narrative that you hear every now and then surfacing and every now and then somebody's appointed to look at it. And you talk yeah. about checks and balances. I'm not so sure that checks and balances don't exist, you know. I think checks and balances exist, um, but they are run roughshod over, sometimes by ministers who don't follow the actual process that ensures good governance, ensures those check and balances, and their corresponding narrative is that the public service is keeping us back. The public service are being, you know, unnecessarily obstructionist, when in fact it's about doing the right thing. So there's a kind of balance between the two narratives. One of it is that there requires more efficiency and there requires more innovation in terms of the public sector, which they are restricted by, but by a lot of bureaucratic things in place that leads into those um, checks and balances. But the other part of it is that ministers or people who are elected to office need to understand that those checks and balances exist for a reason. And because you can't get your own way, all of, um, all of the time does not mean it's on account of the inefficiency of the public service alone. No, no, and, and I agree with that. Having, having been involved in several ministries myself, there are checks and balances, but unfortunately what has happened is that over time, they have been eroded uh, or even watered down to the point where they've become ineffective. Uh, and the, and the, the, uh, the, the current process that you talked about whereby ministers bypass those checks and balances uh, or, or uh, even over, over, overwrite them or overrule them uh, has become the norm. So the checks and balances in many instances no longer is the norm. In terms of our but, behavior, but, that is, but, that's really the problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Mr. Barr. When you were Minister of Agriculture, Lands and Fisheries, I think, or Marine Affairs, I think it was. And the Marine Affairs. Right. You you were not really, you, you were not the responsibility for state land didn't fall under your ministry. I think it fell under um, housing and the environment. Am I correct? No, no, no. It fell under my portfolio. The, the portfolio was uh, food production, land and marine affairs. Mm -hmm. So do with fisheries as well as land as well as agriculture fell under my portfolio when um, when i was moved to uh ministry of trade in 2012 um the then prime minister split the ministry uh, into two parts um devan maraj was responsible for agriculture uh which was production side of the food production side of it and land and marine affairs was handed over to gyrant that's where the split took place, but sorry, uh, no. Dr. Uh, Munilal. Sorry, lands went to uh, EMBD, uh, right. which went to Munilal. Which, which was, was on the housing, right? Part of housing, yes. Right. So I, I it was split that. in three. Yes, mm -hmm. you're right. It was split into, into three at that point in time. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure, I, I, I don't want to be naive and, and, and say to you guys that this hasn't been happening historically. Maybe it has escalated in the last few years and, and Mr. Minister Ambarat, uh, became more aware of it. But I want to tell you that none of this was really ever brought to my attention with the intensity that clearly that uh, Mr. Ambra has, um, has. You referenced checks and balances just now, Mr. Barth. Mm -hmm. And even in Mr. Mr. Rambarat's disclosure, he spoke about the allegations of the complicity of a PS. And and in my understanding of the structure of the public service, a PS is supposed to be one of the, the, the bastions of checks and balances against abuse or attempted abuse by ministers. How much have PSs dropped the ball? Well, the PS, of course, as you know, is the accountable officer for the ministry. Um, 
It is my it is my belief that the quality of PSs over the years um, have been diluted. Uh, if you look if you look back look look at the the PS that I had in agriculture, <clears throat> and then she followed me to trade between uh, a You 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 very rarely find PSs of that quality anymore. Um, they again and obviously if you don't have people of quality, the same if you don't have ministers um, of quality or MPs of quality. The results are going to be uh, negative. Equal, what is the quality you speak about? Technical training experience in addition to fortitude? Because in very many cases, I've heard stories of ministers threatening PSs. I can't fire, but I will move you. And, and, and that sort of pressure being put on PSs who are trying to protect the public interest. Yeah. I'm talking about uh, competence and I'm talking about integrity um, of the PSs. Um, and the ability to stand firm on being able to do what their jobs are. Now, a minister can't move uh, a PS. A minister can request that a PS be moved, but he cannot move a PS. So therefore, uh, a strong, competent PS will know that uh, this is the situation and act accordingly. Um, you know, so, but, but you're right. There are times when, um, when ministers try to... Uh, get their own way and, and uh, ride Russia over a PS. What I found in, in the ministries that I operated in, and as you know, I operated in a few of them, um, was that getting the, getting the PS and the ministry on board with the policies and engaging them um, was far more fruitful and far more beneficial to all concerned. And I think all of you will know that I had a, a very good working relationship with uh, uh, with public the very same public servants, I want to tell you this, uh, and I'm telling tales out of school here, but uh, Minister Rambarat, then Minister Rambarat, um, many years ago, I was at the launching of um, the biography of uh, Ferdi Ferreira at the OWTU Hall. Minister Rambarat pulled me aside and he said, um, I want to ask you something. And I said, well, he said, how were you able to accomplish so much in the Ministry of Agriculture with the same amount of money that I've gotten? And I said, well, the first thing you've got to start doing is stop abusing and cursing or, or denigrating your public servants. Because he had a habit, unfortunately, of continually talking about how lazy his public servants were. And in fact, uh, they were the very same public servants, um, as you guys know, who worked with me. Uh, many or very many of them. But it was really how you engage them. And I'm not saying that all of them, uh, all, I'm not saying all public servants uh, give 100%. But the vast majority with the right leadership, um, you know, they were very competent and very well. Mm. You know, I, I can begin to, to, uh, uh, to see Mr. Rambarat in the light of, um, how I should put it, denigrating publicly public because of his speaking style and whatnot. So much so, Rich, if he was here, Richard probably would have had his mic off and, and disappeared. But, um, but you saying that this was something recent, this revelation? What is that? The, the issue what with is Mr. Rambert pulling your side. That was something. No, no, I, I just mentioned it was when Ferdi Ferreira had his launch. Uh, so it was been in, in the first term. Uh, so it would have been around about 2017. Mm -hmm. It would be remiss of us to have you and not ask you what you think of doc, thought of Dr. Rowley's reshuffle, the reassignment <clears> of <throat> then Attorney General Faris al Rawi, the adding of a minister, moving of Kazim Hussein to agriculture and adding Najuli Freitas and the entry of Reginald Amor senior counsel into the free. The, the entire uh, scenario 
what it means in terms of Dr. Rowley's administration and what it means in terms of these ministries, in particular the Ministry of the Attorney General moving forward, and what it meant for Faris Alwawi? Well, before I comment on the actual uh, intent, for me, I have, a, I have a difficulty, not with just this prime minister, but with any prime minister having the kind of powers which is almost emperor-like, where the country is unaware of the reasons why the attorney general, which is the second most important post in government, um, where the attorney general of a country is moved um, without any notice at all or any give any reason. I think that, I think the, the, the I mean, and this is not uh, the prime minister just uh, doing this um, today and no other prime ministers and other prime ministers have done it as well. I think the country needs an explanation or is owed an explanation, and maybe it's our fault as citizens, but we don't demand these things. An attorney general one morning is just moved from one ministry to another. Is it because of incompetence? Is it because of his allegiance with the former commission of police? Is it because he's a threat or Dr. Rowley feels insecure? Nobody knows. The prime minister has made no statement. And according to our constitution, he doesn't need to. But I think that is wrong. I think it's. I think the citizens are, are due an explanation as to why a most senior member of the government is moved from that portfolio and put into a, a portfolio seemingly where you know it's one that not many people would have very high up on the totem pole in terms of government priority. So, Sabara, did did you just say? Did you just say? that the former attorney general had an allegiance to the former commissioner of police? I'm saying there's a, there's a, a perception that he was close to the former commissioner of police in the sense that- But you use the word allegiance, eh? Pardon? Yeah, I said you use the word allegiance. Well, in, in the sense that they had a, a relationship, a social relationship. Um, you will remember that the Attorney General, former Attorney General, went to Parliament and um, passed legislation to allow uh, someone from outside of the police service uh, to act as um, as police commissioner. Now he, that, did, he didn't do that on his own. He, he had to that, do that. Yeah. He, well, well, again, I don't know, Paul. I, I don't know. I wouldn't. I, I would. I would hope not. But. If one were to read what the CPC said over the weekend, where the matter has been brought uh, for the CPC to be disciplined, uh, the CPC is alleging that uh, the Attorney General was asking him or instructing him to, and again, this is just what I've read, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. right? Um, he's alleging that the Attorney General, former Attorney General, um, instructing him to bypass the time-honored procedure of only drafting uh, legislation that comes directly from the cabinet as a policy decision, or in extreme circumstances from the from the prime minister himself. Um, so who knows whether this piece of legislation went to parliament was done uh, without cabinet? I don't know. Maybe that is what's stuck in Dr. Rowley's scroll. I I don't know. I can't say, but it wouldn't that's be. That's an interesting. The- that's an interesting. Um- perspective well I, i'm just hypothesizing of course mm-hmm. because I don't, and um you know let, let me say that i have a lot of respect for faris al-rawi uh, we are we are friends uh, but i'm just 
putting the facts out there as um, for, from what I read over the weekend as having been a possibility because the, the article went on to say that in the absence of um, the CDC whilst he was on vacation, his deputy um, was actually following the instructions of the Attorney General. So who knows? That happened during that time. Nobody knows. So we, do, do you think Mr. Rari became uh, a liability as Attorney General advising the Cabinet, or was all this strategic on behalf of the Prime Minister to reorganize and reshape the possible effectiveness of the government in the context of a government having faced so many crises in the last six months or year? Well, Paul, nobody knows. I, I, this is what I'm saying. The, the person owes an explanation, otherwise just be guessing. Um, and, and I think the Prime Minister should come out and say, look, uh, we have a, 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 a significant legislative agenda that we need to accomplish over the next three years. Um, I don't believe, I believe that Mr. Armour is best equipped uh, to do such and such, and this is the reason why um, I've made the decisions that I have. Um, I, but I want to quickly go back to that point you made, um, uh, Mr. Bard, about the Attorney General may possibly have gone to the to the to the to the to the Parliament to change that legislation without the tacit approval of the Cabinet and Prime Minister, based on what's coming out from the Chief Parliamentary Council now, right? And because it, it, it makes sense, because in light of the fact that Dr. Rowley has publicly stated he, he had lost confidence in the then commissioner of police a year before. So it, it, it almost makes sense that, because the, the former commissioner has always also been part in that, that he, he didn't have a problem with Dr. Rowley because he himself had brought this legislation to parliament that allowed Gary to continue in office. So it, it makes sense what you are hypothesized. Well, even if even if Faris Alrawi as AG did that legislation of his own volition, the Prime Minister would in fact have given it his tacit approval because it passed. Thank you. It I passed. don't understand no. the mindset. No, no. no. So, so, so that the General can take legislation to Parliament and the Prime Minister <clears throat> sitting on Friday and do you agree with it? That is unthinkable. Yeah. Or he surprised the Prime Minister in the Parliament. Well, now, no. you see, if what we read uh, from the article over the weekend is correct, then it means that what the CPC is basically saying is that instead of the regular procedure or the accepted procedure, which is a note is drafted by a particular ministry, okay, whether it's national security, whether it's health, whether what, whatever, whatever ministry it is, it then comes to cabinet. <clears throat> the note is approved by cabinet. The legislation then goes to be drafted by the CPC's office. And only then does it come back out through that route, through the attorney general's office, and then goes to the parliament. If it is that the CPC is suggesting or stating that he has been instructed by the attorney general to bypass that procedure, which, which means the Attorney General walks into his office in the, in the CPC's office and says, I want you to draft legislation that I'm with you here. And he says, where's, where's the cabinet note from the relevant ministry? He said, don't worry about that. You Now, that, for example, could be how that piece of legislation ended up in the parliament without the oversight. But, but what are the implications uh, for a deviation from that process? Because I don't know what the... What is it law? Is it convention? What are the implications no, it's of the it, it, from the established process? It, right. So it's convention 
And this is, this is why the CPC said he wrote to the Law Reform Commission for guidance on the judicial um, proceedings, to, to get judicial proceedings on guidance as to how he should act. Because this has been, from what he says, um, a, a practice, that that would be the root. So that would then prevent any attorney general, and it makes sense, right? They would prevent any attorney general from just walking in to the CPC's office and say, hey, now I want you to draft this piece of legislation for me. And then it ends up in the parliament without the scrutiny um, of the cabinet. And so a minister of health or a minister of sports or any minister would could suddenly find that a piece of a, a, a bill is being presented in parliament without any input from his or her ministry because it hasn't gone to the cabinet. Do you think that's dangerous? Well, absolutely, because it may mean that a government could be undermined for the benefit of one person yeah. um, because it may not be the policy. It may be, it may be the individual's policy, uh, but it may not be government policy. So if when it lands up in the parliament, the, the, the co his colleagues are not likely to vote against it or not likely, they, they, they feel to have to support it. So I don't know, maybe that's what happened. I can't Including say. the prime minister? <laughs> Including but, the it, but it shouldn't just end up in Parliament without going through Cabinet. But that's, the, that's, that's the whole, what the debate is about now, Richard. Yeah, well, I mean, no, I understand Cabinet mm -hmm. saying this is the policy, this, this is, we want legislation drafted in X. Mm -hmm. But I can't see it getting on, I can't see legislation that the Cabinet is unaware of just suddenly coming onto the Parliament but, but this, these are the allegations. But these are the allegations that the CPC is making. In fact, um, the article went further to say that Jackie Sampson, who I mean, I think we all know and have a great deal of respect for, clerk of the house and has been clerk of the house for, for several decades, actually returned a piece of legislation to the CPC's office for this very same reason, mm -hmm. saying that it had not gone through the proper process and the proper route to arrive at her desk. To be laid. Mm -hmm. The clerk of the court, a clerk of the house, uh, had difficulty with that process. Yeah, I remember that part in the article. So you're mm -hmm. right. Yeah. So, yeah. So and she became a check. Yeah, <laughs> and there's very little you'll get past Mrs. Samson either. Well, can we change the conversation? And again, we're, we're all hypo we are all hypothesizing. We spend a lot. In the absence of Mr. in our yeah. interview with him last Thursday, mm -hmm. indicated he's forming a political party uh, and he's working toward launching before local government election because we asked him specifically, are you involved? Have you been asked to be involved? You asked him if I was involved. If you are involved or if you've been asked to be involved? Uh, neither of the above. If you ask the will you? Um, will you consider it? Let's make it easier. <laughs> that's all right. Like yes, no, 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 no. Look, I think that many things are broken in this country. Um, many of the institutions that we hold there that should be providing the level of service and goods to the population. Um, a lot of it is broken, and I think the rest of the world is moving. Many parts of the world are moving ahead and leaving us behind. And as we say in Trinidad, we still jam in still. 
we need a group of very serious, committed people um, who have achieved things in life outside of politics, who has a level of credibility uh, to come together in my belief um, that, that crosses party lines, crosses racial lines, um, and really truly are prepared to roll their sleeves up for a, a minimum of five years to restore um, the institutions, to the, the, the necessary institutions to Trinidad and Tobago. And also to change our culture. We have this, our culture, there's, a, there's been a, in my opinion, um, a decaying that's take, that has taken place over the years that has created the kind of society that I don't think that we can be very proud of. Yes, we will, we will laugh and we'll joke about certain things and, you know, bodies are tricky and we love living here and so on. But the reality is a lot of young people see no opportunities in Trinidad and Tobago. A lot of them do not want to live here. Um, and for, all, for all, the, all the reasons we all know, whether it's crime, whether it's healthcare, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's opportunities. So you need a group of people who truly understand those issues and will roll their sleeves up and actually get down to making those things, making the job happen. And there, there, are, there are Trinidadians then, here and abroad, who are prepared to do that. If a group of people like that come together, I would like to be a part of that. Yes. Do you think Mr. Griffith can be that nexus? Uh, he, he leverages what he says is his popularity, and I'm putting it in parentheses. But in the present political, political construct, and you spoke about the the construct of the PNM and the UNC being the primary parties in Trinidad and Tobago. Do you think, given what's happening in Tobago, and Tobago is a different socio-political environment, that a third party has a chance in the next local and or national election in this country, if, I guess, constructed right and marketed properly? I think there is so much... Uh, disenfranchisement, there's so much disempowerment, um, so much disconnection. Um, I think the, the gap between those who are wealthy and those who are poor is increasing significantly on a daily basis. I think uh, the, the general population um, are sick and tired of the kinds of politics that uh, we are playing in the country, and we're playing with their lives. You're going to get the hardcore on both sides. But I think if you were to look at the majority of the people in this country, they're really looking for something that is an option that will improve the quality of their lives. And I, So I think the answer to your question, Paul, is a properly harnessed and mobilized group of people will capture the imagination and i think the population has become a little bit more mature but you said the majority of people there are so, average three hundred thousand who have voted for the pnm and unc likewise and the country is supposed to be 1.4 million if you take all the under 18 who can't vote or those who are in the it's about 1.1 million i think eligible voters eligible voters and then you will have the 200,000 who will never vote no matter what you offer them so you what you're saying is that you really have to get some of those PNM and UNC people to say, you know what, this is a viable option and motivate those who were not voting before for either of those two major parties to come out and vote to make a difference. We all know, and I'm being frank here, it's unlikely 
to get to that point? So is it that a party has to grow and get two, three seats and be a negotiating leverage in the parliament and then grow from that? Or do you think there can be a clean sweep and we see a party being formidable and get 14, 18 seats off the bat after just three or four years of campaigning or forming themselves? Well, it happened when twice I talk before. to people, Paul, pardon? I said it happened twice before. The, the shift was drastic away from the PNM that caused the PNM to lose to lose in 86 and again in 2010. Yeah, mm-hmm. but to be fair, that was with a, essentially a coalition, the UNC or the ULF, mm-hmm. in yeah. both cases. Um, but I, I think that the, I think that the UNC has lost political relevance in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, unfortunately, there are still going to be people who will hold on to the organizations for historical reasons. I think Paul is right. You need to get from both parties sufficient numbers to form a critical mass with those who are generally sitting on the fence. So, you know, PNM, UNC, and those sitting on the fence, I think can make a significant impact. Um, I, I don't know if there's going to be enough in a, by the, enough time for a, by, by the time the local government elections come around, but I certainly think by the time the general is called, if it's um, called, um, if it's not an early election, but called when it's due, I think um, it comes down, gentlemen, to assembling the right group of people that is not, is, is not cosmetic in nature. So you're not putting an Indian or African just for the sake of how it will look. You're actually bringing to the table people of genuine competence and credibility who can capture the imagination of the mm. people. And I, I, think, I, I also think it will require a really serious falling off, falling off of support um, for Dr. Keith Rowley himself as an individual, as has as did happen in the past with with with, with Patrick Manning. I think. Agree. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know. I think if you ask me, I think Dr. Rowley means well, but uh, one of the biggest problems that the PNM has, in my humble opinion, um, is the position of Minister of Finance, um, and I've said that from day one. And also Dr. Rowley's demeanor and the way he manages situations and the way he comes across is not endearing. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that you have to be endearing all on every, in everything that you do, but uh, I think you need, to, you need to show a level of empathy, particularly when people are going through difficult times in their own lives and are going through that and um there's a level of arrogance that has crept in that in my opinion creates a, a scenario that uh, happened with in the in the latest stages of this tenure but it's, it's interesting you said that richard asked this question last week of mr griffith they have similar personalities in many ways no, and I, I'm Mr. not Sifford is not some way to take criticism he's lashed out part of the reason that dr Raleigh has on record is losing confidence is Mr. Griffith's engagement with the general public or anyone who seeks to, to add critique to his performance in any way. So I don't see someone who's entrenched and has built a base with his party being replaced by someone who is new, who is known to be petulant at time. It's, I don't, you know, where's the base going to come yeah. from? Which is why so, Vasant has to lead the organization. <laughs> 
it's clear that Vasant is the only person who could bridge that gap and be that be that person that everybody will look up to because yeah. I, I think the, I mean I think the biggest problem I, I think one of the main problems um, Vasant would be the issue of that third party group of voters who sit on the fence and being able to energize and convince them that a new party is going to make a difference. They've been bitten once with the NAR. They've been bitten twice with the People's Partnership. So for a lot of the people in that group, they feel disillusioned, I want to postulate, that third parties, which generally, generally so far, have included some sort of configuration of the entrenched parties coming into it somehow does not fulfill that third party group's vision for where Trinidad and Tobago needs to go. And so they might be a cynical bunch at this point. So it's, it's a Herculean task to actually get them motivated to say, well, this third party may be the one the third the third shot may be actually be the winning shot and 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 whichever third party that surfaces has to overcome that and and i put that against the backdrop that a lot of the young people a lot of young people who are 18 and probably under 30 are less committed to the unc or the pnm with the same maniacal fervor of generations past they're not entrenched in no party because they're more of an information age. Their generation, you know, their generation Z, they're millennials. They tend to be a little bit more independent than their parents would have been. So, right. so they are potential, but you still have to, you still have to somehow yeah. be able to engage them and get them on board. Get them away yeah. from the, man, the maniacal fervor. I love those words, Richard. Yeah, yeah, and. Um... And I wrote everything there because, Richard, in fact, many of my friends or the majority of my friends fall into that category of those who are very disappointed with what happened with the two experiments and the column experiments in 86 and in uh, 2010. And it's very difficult to bring them back to the table um, because, because of their levels of disappointment. I do, I do feel, however, as time goes by and many of them actually become more frightened and more insecure about the future, their own future, the future of their businesses, the fact that they've got to send their children abroad to live. All of those things are going to start playing on their minds and hopefully um, get them to overcome the disappointments of the, uh, of the last two occasions. I don't think they've reached there yet, um, but I, I truly believe that a group of people that they see as credible um, and as competent and not just more of the same and not a dis and not just uh, a uniting of forces to just win a general election, which is what has happened in the past and in my opinion why those two experiments failed. Um, I think that is where the tipping point will come. But isn't, uh, isn't that what Richard said holding true then because at that stage we can't separate ourselves from our past and the disillusionment with those experiments as, as it has been, as, as we put it. So people have tried that before and found that it's wanting. And 
this country votes out because of disaffection and frustration with any particular leader slash government more than it's inspired by something new or different. I do believe that in this instance, they need to be inspired by something different, not just, not just vote whoever is there out for whoever wishes to, to come into play. And uh, you, you made the, you made the, uh, the point about, um, about Gary. The, the reality is that popular, and you also mentioned the fact that he's um, very popular, but popularity is not what this, um, it really is about competence and credibility. And that is what I think the population, I think the population has been, they're hurting, they've been burnt on many occasions. And I think they're willing truly to put aside this kind of politics that we have practiced for so many years that has not served them. Are we ready though? Are we really? I, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, it, it sounds, I, I, I get it, I feel it sometimes, but then I look around and I say, you know, past us getting a nice salary and taking care of our children. Do we really want change in Trinidad and Tobago? I ask myself that question honestly. If we really want to change where we're going and how we how we're getting there. Well, when enough people are touched by negativity and when enough people are suffering as a result of mismanagement or corruption or um, our leaders' inability to improve our lives, I think that's going to happen. And, and I think we're getting there, Paul. I don't think we may be there yet, but I think we are getting there. But I think genuinely people are not going to be excited to come out and vote with what exists currently on either side changing, changing ministers is one thing what do you think dr roddy mm -hmm. really needs to change in terms of his government's operation because changing ministers under the same framework and approach is like to me you know same thing i think he needs to have a visionary minister of finance I think he needs to do something extraordinary with agriculture. Uh, I think that if, if you were to look, I, I've said this, and I, this is not a personal attack on Minister Tim, but it, he just doesn't have the capacity or the vision to lead in the same way that the Jamaican Minister of Finance is doing and what's required in the country. This is not a bookkeeping exercise anymore. This, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, a vision for a country that engenders a level of confidence that will get people back to work, that will create job opportunities, that will create foreign direct investment, that will create local investment. All of you guys know, and you in particular, Paul, because you're in the Senate, you know when you've discussed this before, there's $12 billion tied up in our banks in excess liquidity. Why? It is simply, you think people just want to leave their money there and not have a return on it? Of course not but they don't have the level of confidence. Nobody is going to the, to the private sector and say, listen, listen guys, the private sector is the engine of growth in any, in any country. They provide the employment, they provide investment. Tell us what you guys need to be able to take that $12 billion or a large part of it out of the banks and invest it in Trinidad and Tobago. Why do you think last year Trinidad and Tobago suffered from a negative 489 million US dollars of um, capital. Negative, you know what that means? That means there's capital flight. That Trinidad and Tobago received less foreign direct investment than Haiti last year. Why is that? It is because there is a lack of confidence. But then when you, when you, you say that and it's a fact because it's accurate and then it's so easy for the 
authorities to come and say, well, everywhere in the world suffered that at different levels. It's a pandemic, and we all buy it and walk away from the, from the You've discussion. been saying that, Paul, for seven years. But, you know, I was going to say a different version of what Paul just said, because there are many people who are crediting Minister Imbert with keeping the country on an even keel, despite all the economic hardships out there. And through 200 plus years of a pandemic, there are people who have an opposing view that he is doing a fantastic job. All he is doing is borrowing enough money to prop up the country, but creating a, a, a debt burden for our young people in the future. We, our debt burden is up to 90% of our GDP. Now, I don't have a problem with uh, creating debt, but how are you going to repay it? You must be in a position, it's like a, a householder, right? You're borrowing money from the bank, they cut, but they how are you going to repay it? But more so, than that, and added to that, is borrowing money to pay bills is one thing. Borrowing money to, to invest in productive enterprises that's going to be a food down the road is something completely different. That is my point, and that is exactly the point I'm making, and it has to be a balance of both. There are going to be immediate needs, for example, when the pandemic hit, that you required cash that you didn't expect to have to have spent prior to the pandemic. We all, we all understand that. We agree that every country in the world has gone through that. But what are you doing on the other side to create economic activity side by side, which is what the Roadmap Committee was set up to do. The Roadmap Committee was set up to look at, yes, we're in a pandemic. Yes, lives are important. But the, on the other side of the pandemic, are we creating an economic pandemic? And that's where we are today. Where are the new jobs coming from? What's the new world of work going to look like? How is our education system catering for this new world of work and preparing our children for these new jobs that we are creating? All of these are things that a group of, that the Minister of Finance, in my humble opinion, needs to have a group of people around him who are thinking through these things. And the reason I say the Minister of Finance, it is because he holds the purse strings and he needs to understand where the investments that he is making with taxpayers' money and money that he's borrowing, where those investments are going to go. And when I say investment, I'm not talking about economic investments. I'm talking about investments in education, in healthcare. In but, but what you're saying, several people, independent thinkers, respected people have said, Dr. Trevor Farrell, and other economists, and all that comes out is all these armchair um, financial experts, and it's dismissed, and the default goes back to the conversation of who we are aligned to, is who you believe, and the critical thinking that that is being, or the information, or the ideas, or the critique, and I'm not saying criticism, critique, from the experts who were part of the solution uh, uh, group in the, at the start, get frustrated and leave, and it's easy to dismiss them, and the public believes who they want to believe, and we don't get a change or a shift to what independent, credible people seem to be saying. It's easy to say, well, all these um, armchair financial experts were wrong because, look, we've shot well, out, and the IMF well, did well, not say this. And <laughs> because, because yeah. someone has the ability to, to mm -hmm. convince with one news headline on the front page of our people. Well, uh, and, and, you're, and you're quite correct, and that's because of the gullibility of our citizens and the, their willingness to just be partisan in, their, in, in, in what uh, is being told to them and what they believe. Because as you as you'd appreciate, and we come back down to our, our tribal politics, uh, 
uh, whatever Minister Imbert says, there will be a group of people, regardless of whether it's factual or not, will believe it. Uh, and what Mrs. Bissessa says on the next side, or Dave Tampu says, as 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 ill-equipped as who is to be minister of show minister, whatever he says, will also be believed by a group of people, and they will parrot it in similar fashion, right? So that's the issue. But I think most people who are listening to what I am saying will know that I'm not a I'm not an armchair financial person. I have done in, in I've you know succeeded in both the private sector and in, in and in the public sector. But you're right. Um, Minister Imbert has to just get up tomorrow morning and say, Basan Barak talking nonsense, and there's a group of people say, Yeah, you're talking nonsense, right? Um, but that's that is what needs to change. That is everybody in the poll. It won't change, not everybody is gonna change overnight, but I think. Culturally, we need to change, and our leaders—you know, leaders, leaders in—I I mean, I saw something Dr. Farrell uh, wrote yesterday. Um, I'm not sure which news it was. CIC nil QRS, and he said this is not the intercall score, um, but it related to um, the scholarship. scholarships. Scholarships, yeah. yeah. And then he talked about the decline um, in the performance of both CIC and. Um, and QRC over the years, um, and how they've been overtaken by other schools. And he said it all came down to leadership. Well, the reality is that everything in life comes down to proper leadership. Well, did you see the, did you see the response from leadership of QRC? We don't measure ourselves by academic performance alone. <laughs> so, so the reality is well, anything, anyhow. <laughs> you know, so you know you know, our reality yeah. is that. Uh, just a minute. Our reality is that in developing countries and third world countries, uh, I won't call us a third world country, but a developing country like ours, leadership is even more critical because leaders have greater impact um, on our daily lives because our institutions don't function effectively. So we're not insulated as citizens by the institutions that are meant to serve us because tomorrow morning, Dr. Raul, you know, if Mrs. Vicesa was perhaps could walk in into a cabinet meeting and say, right, uh, we're doing this. No institution is involved. The cabinet then formulates the policy and sends it to the institution to develop. Right? So, in we we are we are more susceptible in developing countries to the actions of our leaders. And it could look at what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine. Right, one man, right, a leader in a country like that has is determining the fate of millions of his own people who have no say in what's going on. And it's yeah. even as you know, I'm just wondering, I, I know you kind of touched on it when we started, um, the issue of where is Trinidad and Tobago at? And I think as citizens across Trinidad and Tobago um, need to ask themselves, uh, do we feel optimistic? Do we feel um, that the country is being innovative and transformative in terms of improving our quality of life? Because it always boils down, they say all politics gets local. It comes down to your quality of life and how you feel your quality of life is. Has it changed for the better? Has it changed for the worse? And what is your investment in the future? And you get a sense when you look around the Caribbean that you're seeing Jamaica moving in a particular direction. You see Barbados moving in a particular direction. And you see Ghana moving in a particular direction. Of course, Ghana, of course, a lot of it is fueled by the natural resources that they have, the bounty that they have received um, that they have discovered. And you feel that there's a particular, I don't know if it's, you just feel that there's a particular energy that is emanating from Jamaica, Barbados, and Ghana that Trinidad is not part of. I don't know if it's a misconception of my part, but I just feel that those three countries are energized in some way that is transformative. 
and that Trinidad is at risk of being left behind. Am I misreading it? In my opinion, uh, Richard, you're absolutely correct. You've hit the nail on the head. I happen to be part, I, I, I was actually at the oil and gas conference in Guyana a couple of weeks ago, and I've been talking about their ease of doing business. Um, because they are finding themselves in a situation where over the years, uh, levels of bureaucracy have built up and they need to ensure that all of the investment opportunities come into Diana as is possible. But what I was, in fact, I was annoyed about was the fact that there was no representation from the government of Trinidad and Tobago at the oil and gas conference. And whether there, there was some issue as to whether they were formally invited, uh, I don't know. I mean, I've seen on I've seen on social media copies of invitations sent to Dr. Rowley. It may not have come directly from the president, but there was one I saw that came from the president of the chamber. Regardless of that, to me, I think leaders sometimes need to put aside pride. And they need to do what's best for their citizens and their country. And I felt that Trinidad and Tobago should have had, whether they were invited or not, they should have had a high-level delegation. If not the Prime Minister, certainly the Minister of Energy, high officials from the energy sector, should have been present in Guyana to do two things. One, to show that we continue to be leaders in the world of energy, or we would like to continue in that route, even though we may no longer have a refinery, we do have expertise that we can sell to the world, number one. And secondly, that we have citizens of Trinidad and Tobago who are looking for work since we've closed down our refinery and since our, um, and, and since our energy sector has declined. And so therefore, creating a bridge to allow that relationship to flourish between Guyanese, the Guyanese government and Trinidad and Tobago citizens. To me, it was incumbent on our leadership to create that bridge. And you're seeing it with Barbados and, and Guyana, uh, as you just said, you're seeing it with Jamaica and Guyana. I, I see that for the weekend, the Guyanese government has taken a decision um, whereby, uh, well, not the Guyanese government, but CARICOM, there's a decision taken uh, where, where previously for CARICOM to move ahead on any decision, it required a two-thirds majority of all of the all the member states. Now they're looking at once three members agree on a certain uh, course of action, they can do that, and that's actually to, that's actually to um, engender that continued relationship between Jamaica, Barbados, and Canada. And so now they're embarking on a um, on a very large-scale um, project for agriculture that will benefit Jamaica, Barbados, and Guyana to be, uh, I think it's, it's going to take place in Guyana. But again, Trinidad has been left out. Why? Why is it that we're not part of those discussions? And even if, even if we may not have been invited, we have to find a way to force ourselves into those relationships so that, you know, our country can benefit. But, you know, uh, we're not doing the right. We, 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 are falling behind, not just behind our CARICOM uh, neighbors, but we're falling behind the rest of the world. Hmm. All right. Well, I guess we can, I, I know it's after eight, it's quarter yeah. already actually. So Vasan Bharat, until we see and hear from you again, um, what, what is the name of the new party that's coming out by the way? <laughs> I'm just 
drinking my blue waters and mining the book. That's the appropriate answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's Aye. always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. You know, um, you know. So you have an attorney, have an attorney general and a minister of education right there sitting in front of you. Eh? A possible really? attorney general and a possible minister. Of you, you know what's sad? People who have who are moderately thinking, who can see merit on both sides, are often dismissed in this country because you're not hardcore loyalist. Mm. And that is sad in this country. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, even on the other side. To, mm. to yeah, survive. yeah. And, and that's exactly it. And because we're still practicing 1960s politics. Yeah. You know, and that's I, sad. In the UNC, you know, we're still talking about Mousi and Nana and Nani when we should be talking about our grandchildren. You know, what, what's the legacy we're leaving? You know, that's that that's that you know what they you know what they're gonna say about you again. I know, I know that pull your knife on four. Put on your knife on four. I'll pick up my spoon. But but I can tell everybody that my nanny is an African woman who was living in Lavantil and my nana is an Indian from Shagwanas and they lived in Eric Lavantil for fifty six years. And I spent all of my young childhood there. So they can yeah, say but they, didn't, yeah, but they didn't feed you. They didn't feed you on Sahari leaves. <laughs> That's the problem. Much fine China. <laughs> Thank you, Vasan. Have a great day. Be safe. Yeah. Right, Thanks guys. so much. All the best. All the best. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks All again. Right. Take Thanks care. Again. All right. Of course, that was uh, Vasan Barrett. All right. Let's get into our news brief. All powered by Champion Services. Thank you for choosing Power Water 2 Digital. Listen every weekday for our live show starting at 6 a.m. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.